Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. Today is July 7th, 2016. On Sunday, just a couple of days ago, 20 hostages were murdered in Dhaka, the capital of Bangladesh. This has caused a huge problem for Japan's defense posture and their foreign policy. All of the victims were members of JICA, Japan's overseas development arm. Michael, you followed this story very closely. It's had huge ramifications. Well, it has huge ramifications, but we should clarify. When we're talking about all the victims, we're talking about all of the Japanese victims, which was seven, seven. individuals.、Uh, and then there were、uh, victims from、uh, one from the United States and then a group of Italians who were unfortunately caught、uh, in this restaurant in Dhaka. Two of them were students from Emory University yes, in Atlanta, and, and, Georgia. That's right. And uh, the. the uh, This killing, which has been part of a whole series of ISIS、uh, either inspired or commanded events all around the world during Ramadan,、uh, this is,、uh, we should hope that they finally, now that Eid al Fitr has passed, that this, is, this Tet offensive of ISIS has passed as well. But We can't be sure of that. And certainly the government of Japan can't be sure of that. Right. What, Happened was that these were consultants to JICA. JICA is the Japan International Cooperation Agency. It's the international face of volunteerism and helping people internationally, people of, lo of low incomes, that normal aid programs don't do. Japan actually sends personnel, and JICA is the training. Area and also the organizer of that. Right. Well, JICA belongs to the foreign ministry. The minister of, of foreign affairs was at the tarmac when the bodies were, were unloaded. Yeah. And the, 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 the foreign ministry very much works with JICA in order to develop programs for country, lower income countries and people with lower incomes in, in middle income countries to use Japan's. Human resources、mm -hmm. to reach out. Well, they've this, done a great job in Bangladesh, haven't they? They've done a great job in Bangladesh and they've done a great job everywhere else. No one has anything bad to、mm -hmm. say about JICA volunteers. It's actually one of the ways Japan practices foreign diplomacy, isn't it? Well, it's, if we use the term of Joseph Nye, soft power, it's Japan's soft、mm -hmm. power arm. It definitely puts a, a very, very attractive face on Japanese action. Uh, whereas perhaps a, an organization like JETRO, which is a little more aggressive. And JETRO is somewhat the, the development arm or the outreach arm of the Ministry of International Trade and Development Sciences. Well, I, uh, now METI, yeah. METI, right. Um, and uh, so it, it, it has more of a coordination and, and it has even a defensive side to it. Whereas JICA is entirely open and giving.、Mm -hmm. there's, there's really not anything that Japan gets out of JICA except. Yes, there are a few contracts, but mostly it's just it's simply a, a general、uh, aid program.、Mm -hmm. and, well, it's tied aid. I mean, it's been criticized before as being too tied to Mitsubishi and selling the tractors, and you know, the cement will come from us. But still, overall, I think it's, it's generally highly regarded in, in developing countries. It's highly regarded in developing countries, and also that it's, it's really Japan's soft power.、Mm -hmm. It really is a way. For Japan to reach out. Now, it is also where some of what, what I consider the most、uh, impressive individuals of Japan end up. Sure, they gravitate to, I mean, they're those kinds of people.、Yeah. It's not a high paying position, it's a hardship post because people who are actual members of JICA 
the persons who were killed were, were consultants to it. Mm -hmm. But actual JICA employees have a very difficult time because they they go on three-year tours, and if they have family back home, you know, and they're sent to to some country, Kenya, for three years, there's a sep the separation. The children have now we have days we have Skype and such things, but uh, it it's it's really a set of individuals that are truly impressive, not only in their internationalization, but to their in their dedication. Do they travel on a diplomatic passport? Uh, JICA people, no, they travel on, on simply on, as I know, uh, as I, I, for what I've heard is that it's just simply as citizens. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that they were necessarily part of the diplomatic uh, group. And I would think that very difficult for them to be listed as diplomats and do the things that they do. Uh, because they are really on the grassroots level, mm -hmm. uh, whereas diplomats have to have a certain distance and, and have to be protected. These JICA volunteers are, are basically unprotected. And indeed, in places like Afghanistan, whether JICA should be there or not has always been a question. Mm -hmm. uh, now, for Bangladesh has been seeing increasing violence, and there was a sense within the Japanese government that there, there were indications that there was a, a deteriorating security environment in Bangladesh uh, prior to this incident. Uh, they acted on, in some ways, seemingly some staff members were actually returned home, uh, but... It was something of a, of it a was alert out? Yeah, yeah, but it was completely out of the blue. You mm -hmm. know, that, and and the, the, it's, one has to talk about the attackers as well. Uh, Affluent? Affluent, well-educated, well yeah. internationalized individuals. It's a scary thing, isn't well, it? it that it's, it, it, it bears out the, the theory that uh, we're not talking about poverty, mm -hmm. a reaction against of have-nots have versus haves. These were haves within their own society and even had time in universities in other countries. These were persons with identity and uh, power issues that they were obviously led by some sociopath down into this this hellhole that they created, mm -hmm. and there that has been a real shock to Japanese. The, the headlines have been these were all elites. You know, yeah. this, these people were all members of their local elite. Mm -hmm. How could? This, you know, we, we, we've been told that, you know, this is the resentment of, of the poor and we have to give money. And, and so JICA's position actually can be seen as being undermined because mm -hmm. this aid to the right. poor was supposed to have an anti-terrorist component. Mm -hmm. We should talk about, of course, what Abe, Prime Minister Abe and terrorism in a general sense, though. Okay, well, in, in a reaction to this, I mean, the Japanese said we should bind up with the, the Italians and put together some sort of a security force or something like that. They didn't even say retaliatory, but some sort of a force where they can protect these kinds of individuals. Okay, there's, there's, we have to be completely open. There's no such thing as a quick reaction force mm -hmm. here. There's no uh, special forces that Japan can send to anywhere in the world to rescue hostages. Well, even the Minister of Defense, Nakatani, said the other day that they don't even have a defense attache assigned to the embassy in Bangladesh. That's right. And, and they have no intelligence capacity that's, that's worth talking about mm -hmm. in, in, in primarily Muslim countries. They, they, talk, they did talk about it in terms of the situation in Syria, where we had the execution of the two Japanese journalists. Uh, but 
nothing really exists, mm -hmm. and, and, and nothing is ever going to exist, in my opinion. Prior to this, in Algeria, about 10 Japanese were murdered uh, at a refinery. Yeah, in the first year of Abe's prime minister, premiership, yeah. And that caused a, a huge shockwave throughout the, the defense ministry and also the foreign ministry. What has been done since then? I mean, that might tell us what is going to be done after this. In the immediate aftermath of that, uh, the Abe government passed legislation regarding the ground self-defense forces. Now, the air self-defense forces and, and the, the naval assets, the maritime self-defense forces, had the ability to go to countries to evacuate Japanese citizens. Mm -hmm. uh, but there was no capacity for ground self-defense forces to get into vehicles and drive around and pick people up. Mm -hmm. That legislation filling in sort of that hole was passed. And it was controversial because there are still extreme pacifists in the diet and also in the general society who don't want the GSDF on the ground in any country. But that's all that we've seen. There has been nothing beyond that, and now we have the Bangladesh story. Well, the Prime Minister's office has been beefed up somewhat. They, don't they now have a counterintelligence unit that's inside the Prime Minister's office as well? But they well were going as... to do that anyway. It, mm -hmm. it may have been accelerated a little bit. It might have helped in getting the legislation for the National right. Security Council going. But, but when it comes to boots on the ground and actual protection, I mean, this was in a Tony area of, of Dhaka. A lot of embassies were in the neighborhood. And no other country had, was able to have its uh, forces there. The Italians were being killed as well. It's, it, it, it's just, and the Italians certainly have Carabinieri who have, have experience and also members of their armed forces in, uh, that would be able to do some kind of military action, which Japan has zipped. It uh -huh. doesn't have any way in any way. And of course, they weren't there either. Uh, the, the questions of sovereignty and the ability of of local forces, whether it exists or not, to take care of a situation. That's one of the things that Mr. Abe, before he became prime minister, could rail all he want about Japan's impotence. And that has no ability to reach out and save people. Right. And, and he did in his 2013 book, uh, Toward a New Country, he, he railed at Japan's impotence at, in, a, in a DACA incident back in the 1970s. Uh, that we didn't have the ability to save, uh, in this case, it was a hijacked airline. The Red Army. From the Red Army faction. Long time ago. Long time ago. 1974. And, and, but that's a, a, a crucial and seminal moment in his life, it, psychologically, that that incident where the Japanese government folded, paid ransom, let the, let the hijackers fly away, uh, that to him was unconscionable mm -hmm. weakness. Now that he's prime minister himself, he's finding it's a lot harder. And being PM involves a lot of sitting on one's hands. Right. Which, and, and, and just bearing it. And then when things go really badly, come and collect the dead. And that's it. Well, a lot of times when you uh, are in this kind of situation, you're looking for a place to point your finger. And it's, it's awful difficult because most of the time, you know, the fingers are actually pointing at you. What kind of protection, what kind of forward planning, what kind of crisis management did you put into place? The interesting thing about this, all of this, is that the reaction of the opposition, which is currently engaged in electioneering for the House of Counselors election, remember when the two journalists were killed? Right. 
the opposition immediately accused Abe of having instigated right. and, and stimulated ISIS to executing them mm -hmm. by declaring a joint front with other countries against ISIS. And a pronouncement that we have uh, aid money to go with this as well. That's right. right? And that was the trigger. That was a trigger, they said. In this incidence, no one has in any way linked Mr. Abe yeah. to the incident itself, even though they, the attackers say they were ISIS-inspired and Japan is one of ISIS's enemies, according to ISIS. Mm -hmm. uh, this, this is, I think, a really a major change, or at least maybe it's only due to the House of Counselors election, but I should hope that it's not. I think that there's a, a greater acceptance that this is a worldwide right. struggle, and yes, Mr. Abe spoke too glibly, perhaps, in the past, but he has not been said, no one came out and said, you know, these people died also because of what Abe said two right. years ago, which would have been a cheap, easy sure. hit, and they haven't Nobody touched it. it. Nobody's touched it. Right. You know, we've talked before on this show about uh, potential terrorist attacks happening here in, in Tokyo or in Japan, especially as we gear up to the 2020 Olympics, and that looks very unlikely. Perhaps people are thinking it's easier to hit Japan outside of Japan, and I think that uh, this incident shows that that's probably a working strategy. It's probably true. Japanese are very visible wherever they are. It's, it's not like they can uh, blend in in many of the instances, and it's certainly in the case of the JICA volunteers. Mm -hmm. They stand out like a sore thumb, and there is really no security. It's not like the United States can actually come in and, 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 and smash somebody that, that hurts the United States. In the case of Japan, you, you have to take the hit. And, and it's not part of that umbrella, is it? It's not part of the, the, the security umbrella provided by the right. United States. And uh, that reality uh, is going to make it harder to recruit good people into Japan's uh, soft power projection arms. And that's something that the government has to think about, mm -hmm. especially since it wants to have Japan. This Abe administration has been desperately trying to increase and, and enlarge Japan's footprint around the world. Right. Well, our sorrow and empathy goes out to the victims and their families. It's a sad thing that happened in Dhaka. It's unlikely that something will happen very soon about protecting Japanese that are traveling abroad, projecting Japan's soft power, but we're going to be watching this one. Please stay tuned. Welcome back, everyone. The funniness with the election of the new Tokyo governor continues. This is really starting to spiral out of control. If you like watching how sausage is made, you want to stay tuned. Michael, what's going on now with Koika Yuriko? Well, it isn't a sausage fest, if you want to put it that way. I mean, it's, it's Ms. Koika Yuriko. But goodness gracious, has she completely thrown everything we thought about, the, the, the structure and discipline of the LDP, thrown that in the trash bin. We thought, uh, maybe I think even you predicted that this election for candidates, perhaps, and then the election of from among the candidates was not gonna be so impactful, it wasn't gonna really disturb 
the upper house elections, and boy, has it. It's overwhelmed the upper house elections right now, at least in terms of the photogenic That's right. and, and shocking aspects of it. The, 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 it's the more house, fun to talk about. It is more fun to talk about because the other one's rather depressing, to but be quite frank. But it's also, it's really seeing politics in action. I mean, this is really a slugfest that's going on very quietly, very politely, but as you're watching how things are developed, how her meeting was with uh, Nobuteru Ishihara. Yeah, it was a meeting, yeah. 15, 15 minutes, very curt. Um, I would like to have your endorsement, sir, so that I can run as a candidate for Tokyo governor. Yeah, and, and how did that go? Um, let me think about it. It might be a better idea if you wait until after the elections, and then we can have this discussion then, okay? And uh, the, that, of course, means waiting until July the 11th, the candidacies have to be declared by July the 14th. That's a bit of a short notice, don't you think? Well, she's already lined it up. Um, I think her posters are already being printed as we speak. Uh, she is going full bore, and she has played this so cleverly that even if the LDP turns out to oppose her, boy, they are playing with fire. It's going to be very, very difficult for them to get a candidate who has as much firepower, at least and in, in terms of popularity and in terms of visibility as Koike Yuriko, and she has preempted them. She, she seized the moment. She seized the moment. She did not allow the process to overwhelm what she wanted to do. She saw that there was an opening. There and were, confusion within the ranks. And also that they were actually thinking about trying to have a bureaucrat as their candidate for the Tokyo position and have that bureaucrat be the person in charge of the Olympics. No way, not going to happen. You need someone colorful. You need someone who's out there. And you need someone who looks like he, in this case, she, is in charge. Right. Let's, let's talk a little bit about her attributes, you know, where she comes from, you know, what parties she's been a member of, and that sort of thing. I mean, for example, how many, how many times has she switched parties? Oh, that's, let me try to figure that one out. Uh, she starts out with the Japan New Party, then Japan New Party goes to New Frontier, New Frontier to liberal, liberal to conservative, and then she joined the LDP. So uh, however that many that was, mm -hmm. five, five different parties that she's been in. Okay. In a country like Japan where loyalty and dedication and sit on the stone for three years, you know, that sort of thing, she has been all over the place. And this is a point of criticism. She's flipped that around and said, with that kind of experience, I know how politics works, and boy, does she. Yeah, well, she certainly knows how to turn tail on people and mm -hmm. just turn around on them. And she's well, she, all... she, she doesn't abandon them. I mean, uh, Koizumi came up, also Hosokawa came up and, and kind of endorsed her just yesterday. That's right, and it, it, it's perfect because she, she, she comes from both sides. She comes from ho the Hosokawa opposition side and from the Koizumi side mm -hmm. of, and they came on, they got on, I guess it was a radio program or something. Then right. they said, yeah, it's great that she's here, but we're not endorsing her per se because we don't want to get in politics. Because, of course, they had a terrible experience in the last election, in the gubernatorial election. Hosokawa ran with Koizumi's support, and they still got whooped by Masazoe. Mm -hmm. uh, so they don't want to jinx uh, their uh, protege's chances. I don't think they can jinx them, but they were a little bit careful in what they said. But look at what she's done. She's thumbed her nose at the LDP and said, I'm going to run as a candidate whether you endorse me or not. And in doing so, she's probably 
positively affected those unaffiliated voters who think, I don't like the LDP anyway, and she's kind of a good in-between candidate. And it's a very, very good positioning that I'm, you can support me or not. I don't care. Right. Uh, I've already put my name out. I've made, done my press conference. They had that, the same situation with Matsuzoi, didn't they? But, but Matsuzoi was clearly running as an independent. She's saying, I, I will, you know. I'm I, LDP. I'm LDP. I'm a good party member. I'm putting my name out as a candidate. I'm just not going about it in the proper way. Right. And that, and it has shown that the organization of the party within Tokyo is very, very fractured and, mm-hmm. and not organized. And we could have assumed that pretty much because Tokyo, its relationship with the LDP is really fraught. Right. And uh, at one point, Tokyo was in fact led by the, the governorship, the position that she's being held, for, she's going for, up for, was won three times by a communist, Minobe. Uh, it's, it's not uh, a bastion Mm-hmm. For the LDP, they're not organized here, and it, you're right; they're a minority and a very, very minor minority of the the electorate. I don't know what your opinion is, but I think she sealed the deal just this week on taking such a bold, kind of risky move and really staking her claim for the the governorship. If they try to put anybody else up, that person is going to get smashed. Uh, the LDP and uh, the Komeito in the past have put up very weak candidates as their own. I remember the disastrous candidacy of Akashi Yasushi, who had just prior to that been the UN official who had been in charge of Yugoslavia. Oh, we know how well that went. And they still put him up as their candidate. Uh, They have not been able to Mm -hmm. generate out of their own capacities candidates that are viable. If we go back through who's been the governor for the past decade or more, we have Masazoi who ran as an independent and they followed in. Inose, who was right. the protege of Ishihara, who was a, a, a renegade LDP member. It's a position that's ripe for people who are mavericks right. and who are ready to take on the system. Well, the LDP has decided, let's put a bureaucrat in now. That was their first idea, and they, they're, they're now modifying it. They're trying to get Masia, who was formerly Iwate governor, to run for the post. And he's, he's a he's very an attractive candidate. He's a very intelligent person, but he doesn't stand a, a, much of a chance against someone like Koike, who really has a presence. He's an intellectual presence, certainly, mm-hmm. and, and has really shaken a lot of people's ideas about particularly what's going to happen to Japan in the future in in the areas outside of Tokyo. The population crash that is destined to happen there, he put that on the political Mm -hmm. map. And the the new three arrows of the Abe administration were based on his report, the Masada report, that really took everyone's basic complacency and shook it and say, we are on a highway to hell on this one. He could play off of that, but then again, Tokyo is the exception. Right. Uh, right. It's not a place like Iwate where his pre- pre- prescriptions would be significant. In fact, he'd be handling the exactly opposite problem, which is that Tokyo is way too attractive and sucks the life out of the rest of the country. Now, for someone like Koike, doesn't bother her at all. Sure. And so uh, it's going to be, I, I don't see the, that there's going to be a real viable LDB counter uh, to Koike. So maybe we're just, we're, she's our next governor. I, I, I believe so. We've got the election 
this Sunday, the 10th of July. Um, for the House of Counselors. For the House of Counselors. Four days later, they cut off who will be a candidate for governor. That's right. There's only four days there. I don't know who is going to be uh, throwing their hat into the ring, but I think it's, it's a foregone conclusion that whoever it is is just a contender. And since it's going to be two weeks after a national election, we can be pretty sure that turnout is going to be abysmal. Also, the school is out, people are going into their holidays. I mean, it's the 31st of July. You cannot possibly choose another possibly worse date in terms of weather, in terms of people being around. You could maybe put something during the Obon holidays, but nobody puts elections at that time right. of the year. Uh, it's, it's going to be ca catastrophic. And so a person like her, who has built-in re name recognition, will just romp to victory, I think. Thank you, Michael. Well, with that, I think I'm going to withdraw my candidacy. Koike Yuriko is going to be the next governor of Tokyo. You heard it first here. Thank God. <laughs> As most viewers know, we film on Thursday and upload our episodes on Tuesday. So by the time you get this upload that we're gonna talk about right now on the upper house election, the election will already have been called and the winners announced. So we're gonna go through a little bit of analysis here of how it stands right now and see if they hold true in five days time, Michael. I don't know what you're going to do here, but I'll let you be in charge. Okay, well, I think there are a couple of things that people need to look out for, the LDP, striving for a majority of the, the seats that are up for grabs, or in a coalition reaching two-thirds. Okay, so we, we predicted that they probably wouldn't, but it looks now, and it, it, right now on this Thursday, that they're going to make it if you add in the two micro-parties that have been associated with them, Osaka Ishinokai and uh, right. Nihon no Kokoro wo Taisetsu ni Suru no To, the J the party of Japan Kokoro. Mm -hmm. uh, let's not go there. Okay. Uh, but that looks like they're at this 162 line. And if that's the case, then for the Kometo, it's a nightmare. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the, the LDP, if they win 57 seats, it will be the first time that they have a majority in the upper house for the last 27 years. That's right. That's the other number, the, the, the uh, 121 number right. that we were discussing the other day. If they do, and it and it, it again, the projections here on Thursday say they have it in in the bag. Then we have an instability inside the coalition itself. The Kometo no longer provides the number of votes necessary to pass legislation. The, the Kometo is basically right. an adipose. Uh, it it does provide a two thirds majority in the House of Reps, uh, and that might have in constitutional implications. But as in terms of legislation. The chains will be off the LDP for the first time in 27 years. Right. The other thing to watch is, were the two ministers re-elected? It's always a big thing here uh, that a minister does not go down. And when a minister does go down... That's a big deal. It's a big deal. And it also triggers a reconfiguration of the cabinet. That's right. It, it basically demands it because when a cabinet minister goes down, that's an indication that there is a significant weakness within the cabinet as a whole. Mm -hmm. uh, you just simply can't gloss it over with, oh, we'll just replace so-and-so with just someone else. Well, you don't have to absolutely be a member of the parliament to be a member of the cabinet. That's right. You can bring in someone from the civilian side and have them serve. And that might be something that Mr. Abe, who has avoided doing that, might want to do if in a, in a pinch. But 
we're, I think we're looking at, after the election, a full reshuffle of the cabinet and with some people who've been in a position for a long time going. By the way, today, the 7th, is the day that Mr. Suga becomes the longest serving chief cabinet secretary in history. How about that? That dynamic between him and the minister of finance just continues to go just unbridled. And, every, and he's been in charge of the bureaucracy. He's been in charge of the message for longer than anyone in history. And every day from now on, he's, setting, he's made this a, a, a historic cabinet and a historic prime ministership. Mm -hmm. So Mr. Abe, is, he's going for the record too. Uh, he probably won't beat his great uncle Sato, but uh, already it's in the bag. The, the Abe premiership is one of the great ones of Japanese history. Well, those decision points are really being defined now, especially in this election. The third point I'd like to discuss is how many votes were cast in Kanagawa? And why would that be significant? That is hugely significant because you've got Mr. Suga opposed to Mr. Aso. They have their own favorite candidates in Kanagawa. Uh, well, the thing is about the Kanagawa pref... Okay, first of all, it, it elects multiple uh, candidates. And when you have a multiple candidates, you start to have the dynamics beyond party and beyond faction. Mm -hmm. I, would, I would think that, for example, where you have as many seats open as you do in Kanagawa, that there might even be a youth candidate. Now, the youth vote has been put, has been criticized and said that it, they don't have any power, they don't show up. But when you have four or maybe five spaces, or in the case of Tokyo, six, that last seat is something that can be fought over. And in Kanagawa, we have the, the, the two LDP candidates, but here we have a possibility of there being a dark horse. And that's what's really interesting to me about that. Not so much the, the infighting between the two, because I, I frankly, I, I think it's all for show. Well, no, here's my point though, that if in fact there must be a cabinet reshuffle, two of the ministers or one of the ministers loses her, her position and they need to have a new minister of state, for example, mm -hmm. okay? And this fight between Mr. Aso and Mr. Suga, it's, it's divided too much of, of the attention of the prime minister one of them has to go or both of them have to go, that decision point could be how Kanagawa shakes out. I didn't think about that, but that makes sense. Uh, in terms of Aso's long-term viability, uh, he's been a source of great comedic relief inside the cabinet, saying all kinds of funny things along the way. But let's face it, uh, finance, he, he's done enough damage there, uh, <laughs> to put it mildly, and he, his time may be finally up. Well, you, I think you're right. We had an episode on the GPIF recently mm -hmm. that talks about how much money was lost in this gamble to pay for pension funds. By changing the distribution, the, uh, the, the weighting between government bonds and equities mostly. There have been also foreign equities were also increased. But yes. The, and they pushed, they pushed the date of announcing that until after the elections and already stories are starting to leak out. Five trillion yen. Yeah, that's, that, that's, but that's five trillion yen. And then in the next quarter as well, that there's going to be a further loss thanks to Brexit and the world markets going south after that. So, yeah, whoever's going to be the one. But the thing is, GPIF, that's, that's, that's Koseisho. That's, that's, that's the Ministry of Health. Uh, finance is not going to be affected necessarily, but certainly Mr. Aso uh, 
he's going to be taking some hits on he this. Is, he is a powerful politician. It's going to be hard to have a cabinet without him, but something obviously needs to be done there. Uh, well, I'm, we'll see, because the, the administration has been so stable and so successful, but Mr. Osso's in his 70s. Uh, there are lots of candidates who want a cabinet post. We'll see if that works out. Right. So you predict that there will be a cabinet reshuffle. There will be a cabinet reshuffle. I don't know if the Kanagawa result will affect it because I think there are much longer structural reasons for a breakdown in the relationship between Mr. Abe, Mr. Suga, and Mr. Aso. Yes. I think, that, I think they're, they're present now, and whatever happens on July the 10th is just the cherry on top of the cake, the cake I'm afraid. Well, I think there's a lot of pent-up frustration among members of the LDP and the other facilitating parties to have a cabinet reshuffle because there are a lot of people that are waiting for their turn. That's right. Now, what other things do you see about the election that we should so, think about? So my fourth uh, question is about uh, Komeito. Are they going to get seven of the seven seats? Well, they, they order their people to vote in a way that makes that happen. So, uh, yes. Let's, let's just say a simple yes in, in that uh, they are extremely disciplined and it won't matter that the candidacies are kind of boring, that the issues have not been discussed in a way that's stimulating. That's, for, that's a problem for parties that need non-aligned voters to show up, like mm -hmm. the Democratic Party. Right. For the Komeito, they're going to show up no matter how dull the election is, and they're going to vote for their candidates the way they were told to do so. Well, a lot of people are observing that this campaign is awful boring this year. Well, I wouldn't say that it's boring. I think it's quite fascinating in terms of the internal maneuvering that's going to have to take place after it. What hasn't happened, though, is a way of exciting people uh, to get them to go to the polls, except for when they are part of some kind of political machine. Mm -hmm. And that does bleed a lot of the interest out. Also, the fact some people are just love two-party systems. They just think that that's the cat's meow. It's one set of ideas taking on another set of ideas. That is gone in Japanese politics, and perhaps they just don't, they don't want to accept the way it is, which is a dominant, one single dominant party, and then other parties arrayed around it. Well, I think uh, Gerald Curtis also pointed out, eminent professor on Japanese campaigning, that this campaign this year is lacking in issues. I mean, they're not talking about nuclear energy. They're they have not talking plenty about, of issues. I they take, have plenty of issues. I but take complete, uh, completely opposite view on this. Okay, I'd like to hear it. Well, look, the, 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 the opposition in putting together its four-member, uh, its, its four-party coalition has, oops, I use the term, alliance there. Uh, the, its four-party alliance has come up with some basic issues which it allies itself with the basic views of the people, which are... That mess, that, that opposition alliance that you're talking yes, about. Yes, that mess yes. That, that managed, that's running candidates in 32 of 32 uh, single-member districts. They agree that nuclear power should not be in the baseload calculations of Japan for the future. They, all, they have different views on how quickly they should phase out nuclear, but they're all for nuclear phase-out. They all agree that the security legislation passed last year is unconstitutional. They all agree that there should not be, under, Abe, under Prime Minister Abe, any moves toward constitutional revision. Mm -hmm. it's, they, they believe that daycare workers should be paid more. They have some, all these things that they agree on. It, and they, they have places in which they can fight on the level of ideas. The, 
It's just that the, 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 the target is so overwhelmingly powerful. Right. It, it, it's, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to knock down a, a, a robot made of iron with cotton swabs. It's just not working. Yes, well, I think they're writing their campaign slogans with finger paint because I think the, the cohesion there is just not, it doesn't exist. And I think the voters also see that. This cohesion that, that you've been describing is this thick. And after the election, what's going to happen? I think that that's pure LDP propaganda they, they, that's channeled through the Yomiuri Shinbun saying, oh, they're not together, they, they, don't have a, a common, they don't have common goals, this is all very confusing to the voters. That's, that's Yomiuri classic, psychophantic, we serve the powerful crap okay. that I simply don't believe in. What the problem is, is that it's so hard to vote in a district election on the base of ideas. It's so it's hard. It's about, you know, who can bring the bacon back to the district. I mean, I watched the, the, pro, the NHK program, which highlighted one of these new merged districts, the Totori Shimane district. And they're suffering, now. aren't they? Yeah. In that, they are, they are a marginal, parasitic part of Japan that is in no way going to be a jobs generator, no way it's it ever going to be a center of political power ever again. And it has, as its main fight, the LDP member for uh, Shimane, and then an outsider that the four parties are, are supporting, who's from Tottori. And to watch them campaigning, both in their home districts and then going across the border into the other side, you can see that the, this joint candidacy is hopeless. It's hopeless. Yep. That person cannot promise to this impoverished parasitic prefecture, or pair of prefectures, I can bring the contracts, I can bring the subsidies, I can bring the protections from I'll TPP. fight for you. I will fight. He can say that, but everybody listening says, no, you're yeah. not, you don't have it, man. You, right. can't, you, don't, you can't give us anything. And they're going to vote with their heads and they're going to vote with their wallets and they're going to go for the LDP. And you can see that nationwide. Okay, one of the other, I think, barometers is who gets Mie Prefecture. That's true. But Mie Prefecture is the one place that Okado Katsuya seems to care about. Right. The rest of the country, he sort of already shrugged his shoulders, say, I'm going to lose, and if we lose very big, I won't put my name out to be the leader of the party. Oh, that's really reassuring. That's kind but of... He, but, but he says, I will definitely quit if we lose in Mie, my home prefecture. Oh, Clap, clap, clap. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very impressed by your determination. Right. Well, he is the leader of the largest opposition party, and you would think that he has a little bit more guts and a little bit more charisma, but he isn't really coming home with the, with the goods there. If he cannot help a two-term incumbent survive in his own home prefecture, of course he should not be head of the DP. He has nothing. He has nothing to offer. It looks as though that, however, his candidate might survive. Whether, whether that's going to in any way change the outcome nas nationwide, meaning the DP is going to get smashed. Do they continue with Okada? I don't think so. Uh, but if he wins in Mie and he starts arguing, well, we won in Mie, right. uh, it's going to be just 
Uh, yeah, one more th- fight that the the DP doesn't need. Okay, well, in any event, when Tokyo on Fire is uploaded on Tuesday, that's another point that I think viewers should look at. Who won in Mie? And is Mr. Okada going to resign from the party uh, leadership? The Michael Chuchek faction of this particular group says yes. Okay. <laughs> and the last point that I'd like to bring up for your uh, opinion and consideration, For my education, sir, please, is, tell me. Does the LDP in a coalition reach two-thirds, and who cares? Does it matter? I think, well, based on what we see here on Thursday, that when this goes up on Tuesday, they will have... It's a coin toss. It, they, I think they're pretty close to it. The, uh, all of the major news organizations that are doing projections, Kyodo yesterday and Nikkei as well. They're predicting it. They're predicting it, right. and they've, they've got really good... A really good sense of what's going on in the ground all over the country. Sure. Uh, but Michael, who cares? What happens if they get that? I mean, all that does is it excites the population to think they're going to change the constitution, but that's not necessarily a given. Oh, it's yet, it is necessarily a given. Since 1955, the, the charter of the LDP says, we are the party of constitutional revision. It has never had the votes in both houses of the diet to do that revision. Mm-hmm. If they have the possibility, they already have the two-thirds in the House of Reps, if they get it in the House of Councilors, you have got to be kidding me that Mr. Abe is going to turn around after his career of being a revisionist to and say, well, we were just kidding. 60 years, yeah, but we need a few more. Well, no, it's, yeah. it's done. Okay, maybe the possibility that they could do it, but I think the likelihood that they will actually be able to move on it. I mean, look at us. Every week we talk about an issue, we make predictions about it, and then we change it in the next episode because things are just moving so quickly here. In this case, this will establish the possibility of doing something that the LDP has stood for for 60 years. It's not conceivable that Abe can hold back and not go forward with constitutional revision. He's just driven. He's driven to do it. it. The numbers drive it. It's it's the juggernaut that he helped push all his life. He has pushed on constitutional revision, and in interpolations in the Diet has had all of these uh, sock puppets pop up and say, Mr. Abe, if you had the chance, would you you do this? And he's saying, yes, of course, but... It's not going to happen, so let's just deepen the conversation. When he finally has the votes, all of those years of preparation and all of those years of of thundering, we need to be able to do this, that bill is going to come due. Well, I think that's not going to come to fruition because, like TPP, there was a lot of energy spent on it, and now we have to sit on our hands. Similarly, with revising the Constitution, I mean, look at his, his term that's left over, how difficult it is to get a referendum going to get two-thirds to vote on that referendum, I think there's a lot, a lot at stake here. Well, you and I, were going to have to disagree, and when Tuesday comes around, and this is loaded up, you and I will have probably completely opposite opinions. Absolutely. Let's visit it next week. Thank you for staying tuned. Good luck on the election to all of our candidates that are running for this Sunday. We're going to follow that and update you in our next episode.